Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. We're going to get right into it today. Got two grantees here. Dr. Joshua Anderson is Associate Professor of Biochemistry at Brigham Young University, and Dr. Buminder Singh is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Cell and Developmental Biology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us. One quick note about how this conversation is structured. I think we're going to spend the first couple of minutes kind of talking for a lay audience, and then the discussion will get a bit more technical as the two of you talk about your recent scientific publications. So, Josh, I'll start with you. I guess when I first saw your grant after you were funded, it really popped out to me. You're, you're, you put it so well, your area of inquiry. You were talking about, and I'm going to quote you here, our ability to design more effective personalized anti-cancer therapies is limited by the fact that we don't yet fully understand the changes that occur within cells that cause them to become cancerous. And until we achieve this understanding, treatments for cancer patients are going to be limited to blunt chemotherapies that produce a variety of toxic side effects. So I, I thought that was really well put. And I wondered if you could just kind of expand briefly on, you know, for a lay audience, what are you doing in the lab? What's your area of approach and how are you kind of conducting this work that's so going to be so beneficial to future cancer patients. Yeah. So we, we really like, you know, it said there in the quote, we want to move beyond blunt chemotherapy and develop more targeted therapies. And, and one of the obstacles to that is that we don't know all of the cancer drivers out there. So the cancer drivers are genes that are mutated and then have the ability to take a normal cell and convert it into a cancer cell. And these are the targets of targeted therapy. And we don't know all the ones that exist out there in the patient population. And so one of our major goals is to identify new cancer drivers and then develop targeted therapies against them. So that's really, that's really well put. And I guess, Bumi, what really popped out about your project was the title. It's just a great title. Nice job. Titles are hard, mm -hmm. I think. And, and your, your grand title was called Overcoming a New Mode of Resistance in Colorectal Cancer. And man, that's a topic that resonates with people. Drug resistance is um, pretty problematic. So could you talk a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with your ACS funding? Yes. Um, so like, you know, Josh mentioned, uh, you know, targeted therapy, you know, find new molecules to, you know, like totally individualized therapy, even if you can imagine like a one drug or a set of drugs for one patient. So in colon cancer, uh, cetuximab, uh, in the title, um, is a clinically approved drug for advanced colorectal cancer. But you know, we, what I study is the resistance to those therapies, which are very common. So almost everybody who's receiving cetuximab will develop resistance to that drug. And there are uh, multiple mechanisms to those resistance pathways. And uh, what I am trying to study is new novel ways that you could get that resistance and even like go a little bit, try to go a little bit uh, further and maybe provide some solutions, uh, maybe some existing drug therapy, um, targeted therapies that you can combine with that, or maybe provide new ways to select, sort, uh, treat patients. Oh, so exciting. And, and both of you. Um, just keep cranking out the work. And I guess one of the reasons we brought you together is because you had some new publications and thought it'd be really fun for you two to kind of talk through your work. So you guys want to get into it? Sure. Yeah. All right. So we'll start with you, Josh. You've got, I think it was Nature Communications. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. New Nature Communications paper. And, um, you know, for me, not a scientist, it's almost like reading Mandarin. There's some unfamiliar words here. TNK1 is a ubiquitin yeah. binding. And how do you even say this? 1433? Yeah, yeah, that's right. TNK1 is a ubiquitin binding and 1433 regulated kinase that can be targeted to block tumor growth. So I would love to hear you kind of give us the scoop on, on your, your recent findings. Yeah, so this was, uh, we think it's uh, one of these, an example of what I was talking about earlier, a new cancer driver a very poorly understood cancer driver. Uh, and and this, the, it, it's been probably the most rewarding project I've been a part of in my career. And it started with basically two labs identifying this kinase independently, our lab and Jeff Tyner's group at Oregon Health Sciences University. He identified it in a genetic screen for um, drivers, basically of primary blood cancers, uh, human patient samples. And we identified it as an interactor of this protein 1433, which you just mentioned. And, and what I, I guess what I'd want to mention is what, what hooked me on the kinase um, from like a basic science perspective is that it's unique in its domain architecture. So it, it, it stand, there's 630 some kinases in the human genome, and it, it has some unique aspects to it. One of them is that it has a ubiquitin binding domain on its end, its C-terminus. And this, this was unique as far as we knew across the entire kinome. Only TNK1 and its sister kinase have one of these ubiquitin binding domains. They're called UBA domains, at least a functional ubiquitin binding domain. So we, in this paper, we described how it interacts with ubiquitin. It interacts with multiple linkages of ubiquitin and with really high affinity, which um, again, it totally piqued our interest in why is it interacting with ubiquitin? Uh, we figured out that it needs to interact with ubiquitin for its normal um, you know, kinase activity. We also identified uh, a binding site for this protein 1433 right next to the ubiquitin binding domain, the UBA domain. And we found that if we disrupt 1433 binding, we unleash uh, the kinase. It becomes super active and capable of transforming um, myeloid cells and, and, and essentially kind of making them growth factor independent like an oncogenic kinase should. Yeah, so 1433, we think, um, inhibits the kinase, but possibly also inhibits its ability to interact with ubiquitin. And under normal conditions, when it interacts with ubiquitin, we think that tethers the kinase to its substrates and also acts as a mechanism of induced proximity. So if there are listeners that are familiar with kinases, they, there's typically a mechanism that brings individual monomers of the kinase together to combine and oligomerize, and that's how they become active. We think Interacting with ubiquitin is a mechanism like that for TNK1. And, and finally, I guess for cancer relevance, what makes this even more interesting to us is that there are examples in patient tumors where a gene rearrangement truncates TNK1 and it chops off its UBA domain and its 1433 binding site. And this, at the beginning of the project, I think when I wrote the ACS proposal, this was completely kind of counterintuitive to us why would this truncation truncate the UBA domain? And what we found out in this paper was that it has an effect, although it kind of disrupts its normal function, it has this compensatory effect of really stabilizing its protein levels. And so in, in the cells that have this gene rearrangement, TNK1 protein expression is really high. And then the, the loss of the 1433 binding site, again, it unleashes the kinase and makes it super active. And, and 
takes a kinase that we don't normally think of. Uh, we don't think it's typically like an oncogenic tyrosine kinase, but with this mutation, it, it converts it into one. So, yeah, that's basically the story. Heck of a story, too. Uh, Fumi, what do you think? You had a chance to read this. Do you have any? Um... Yeah, so I have quite a, actually quite a few questions or even things to learn from this paper because it's it's a really nicely done study. This Are there any mutations in KNK1 in human cancer? I guess I would start from there. So it's surprising because there aren't, we would, we kind of expected that there would be point mutations that disrupt the 1433 binding site, but we don't find very many at least. They don't stand out in the patient data, but there are isolated examples of this gene rearrangement that truncates off the 1433 binding site and the UBA domain. So right now we only know of three examples uh, in, in, in cancer. But there's a very convincing example in Hodgkin lymphoma where it's, uh, it turns it into a really uh, potent oncogenic kinase. We think there are other examples out there, but they're, they're hard to identify. Mm -hmm. I guess these are only three, so that it doesn't make sense to uh, think about tissue specificity. Yeah, yeah, we haven't, we've, we've thought about it, but we, we don't have any good ideas yet in that regard. The examples though that are out there are, are they're all lymphomas, Hodgkin lymphoma and then a, another uh, type of lymphoma. Um, so, so that's one of the questions we're dealing with right now is we need to find more examples uh, of patients where this gene rearrangement occurs. It's hard to, you know, for if there are listeners that deal with like sequencing data, these small gene rearrangements are hard to find because they're not probable by fish and typical like whole exome sequencing doesn't identify them. So you have to probe deeper to, to really identify. That's what we're trying to do right now. So you mentioned that it binds to those uh, ubiquitinated um, uh, rich proteins. Could you, yeah. uh, like, um, how does it work? Or like, what is our, its oncogenic functions, so to say? Yeah, so we, um, one question, I guess, kind of related to what you're asking is, we were trying to figure out what ubiquitinated proteins it was binding to. And, and we don't have a, have a concrete answer yet. We think though it interacts with these clusters of polyubiquitin, these phase separated clusters called condensates, where you know, unfolded uh, proteins yeah. get polyubiquitinated and they get gathered up by autophagy adapters into these liquid liquid phase separated you know, clusters. And we think it actually interacts with those condensates and becomes active there which has all sorts of interesting implications that are exciting to us because we study autophagy. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's what we think is going on as far as how it relates to its oncogenic function. We think it becomes active there. It's not clear to us whether it's phosphorylating growth pathways or autophagy pathways. We have some ideas, but, but it's not totally clear yet. Yeah, I saw you were uh, performing some uh, mass spec strategies. I mean, that could be a way to maybe identify key substrates that, you know, change uh, in in response to its activity. Is that, I guess that's probably what you're already thinking in those lines. Yeah, 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 you nailed it. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. So we're trying to find substrates that are dependent on its interaction with ubiquitin to try to like home in on the substrates that are at those condensates that it could be phosphorylating. Yeah, that's exactly what we're trying to do. You know, one thing I also, Study. So I come from EGF receptor signaling background. So ubiquitination of receptors for, for actually cell surface receptors is kind of a down regulatory signal for um, usually. Um, do you think this TNK1 itself gets uh, ubiquitinated under certain conditions? 
or 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 like a negative regulation is is are there any yeah. pathways that have been um, I mean you showed the inhibitor but I'm thinking you know are yeah. there other ways you could um, down regulate the activity yeah so actually one that's a good question because one of our initial ideas was that it gets ubiquitolated on its N terminus and its C terminal UVA oh. folds over and interacts with that ubiquitin site. And that was a very hot idea in the lab and still is, I think, but we just we just don't have uh, solid evidence for it yet. But we, I, th I think that's a possibility. That could be an auto inhibitory mechanism. So that was a great story, Dr. Anderson. I, and I wonder if we could switch gears now because Dr. Singh, you also had a recent publication. It was in the Journal of Cell Science. Induction of apically mistrafficked epiregulin disrupts epithelial polarity via aberrant EGFR signaling. Tell me all about it. Let's hear it. So this work, um, you know, I, I like I mentioned, my research I've focused mainly on receptor tyrosine kinases, and within the cancer field, we focus on solid tumors, and uh, most of the tumors, solid tumors, are arising out of the epithelium. So basically, the cells that are lining the body cavities, colon, breast, lung, they're all epithelial tumors. Epithelium has a very distinct job just because it straddles the, uh, the you know, two worlds, so to say, um, the outside and the inside world. So they have specialization by way of the region of the cell, which is facing the outside that is usually apical surface. And the region that is in contact with your body, your lining is basal or basal lateral surface. So they have different lipid and protein compositions. And that's how the cell uh, is able to maintain the function of the epithelium, protect you from all the outside challenges, and you know keep the inside things in. Uh, so what we study is EGF receptor uh, more specifically, uh, and the name is epidermal uh, growth factor receptor. So it has a pivotal role in maintaining the epithelium, but is also often dysregulated in cancer. Uh, mutations and all those things, uh, but still, in majority of cancer, it is wild type. Uh, so where is the activation signal coming from? And that's where the ligands come in, the ligands that will bind to the receptor and that then lead to its activation. And to make things uh, more complicated, EGF receptor is a cell surface protein, and all the EGF receptor ligands are synthesized as uh, cell surface uh, proteins as well. So they are in precursor form and they are on the cell membrane. And then they need to be cleaved so that they then diffuse on the outside of the cell and then bind, find their way to the receptor, activate the receptor and downstream signaling. Um, so even before they bind to the receptor, how they are presented to the cell surface and within the epithelial context, which cell surface they are presented at. Now, are they presented to the apical surface or the basolateral surface? So that's the basic cell biological question. You know, it um, has a lot of um, key you know, you can go very uh, granular in terms of your strategies, uh, your key residues, amino acids, or even microscopy-wise, you can go really fine, super-res microscopy and everything. Uh, what I was studying, um, I was studying one particular EGF receptor ligand, epiregulin, uh, so E-R-E-G for short, I guess if you were reading the paper. Um, and uh, this is a basolateral protein. So we found out previously that it uh, localizes to the basolateral surface. That's also where uh, majority of the receptor is, EGF receptor. So there is a nice ligand receptor pair on the basolateral surface, and we believe that's the 
homeostatic or the housekeeping functions of that um, that that couple. Um, what we found out that a single amino acid mutation in the cytosolic domain of um, epiregulin leads to its complete apical uh, mistrafficking. So now instead of on the basolateral surface, this single amino acid mutation in the cytosolic domain leads to its apical delivery. And that is actually a transforming event. So we found out that just uh, by mislocalizing, uh, you know, just send a ligand to a different address, you could um, kind of uh, establish a new signaling platform even maybe. Uh, that is probably the oncogenic part of this whole EGF receptor signaling pathway. So that's the, I guess, the translational relevance, but I am also pretty excited in you know, how the epithelium is maintained, and I think this paper uh, goes more into that. So in this paper, we employed more um, uh, 3D culture models. So, you know, majority of the ca cancer models right now, the, you know, cells are uh, grown on plastic. So they are, you know, uh, kind of flat sheets. Uh, but since I, like I mentioned, I do want that apical basal uh, differentiation kind of uh, in my models. And we, so we uh, grow them in matrigel, so which, is, which is basically a viscous matrix. The cells are suspended, and when they grow, um, uh, divide over, over time, over days, they would form kind of a ball or a sphere, uh, which is hollow on the inside. And now the apical surface is facing inside and the basal surface is facing outside. So this was the model system uh, which we used. And um, you know, I found out uh, that you could, um, again here, you, with the wild type and mutant epiregulin, you could um, track the fidelity of trafficking in, in, these, in this system as well. And uh, there are these epithelial deformities that you can additionally see in this model, uh, which you cannot appreciate on plastic or, or even on transfer culture system, which we were using previously. Uh, so they, instead of a single hollow lumen, um, so the lumen is the central hollow place, um, you know, for all the epithelial tubes, if you think of gut, uh, there is one tube. Uh, but when we overexpress this mutant form of epiregulin, the apical form of epiregulin, uh, it leads to, uh, instead of a single lumen, it forms many lumen. Uh, so that's a multiple lumen phenotype, um, and many play, at many cases, many researchers have kind of shown that as a surrogate for epithelial transformation. Um, so that's, uh, I guess, one of the big points of this paper, that we can recapitulate this um, loss of polarity. And, um, you know, these are not, epiregulin is by no means a, a housekeeping gene for epithelial polarity, but just that um, mistrafficking of a single protein can kind of lead to this global uh, perturbations. Yeah, so that's um, pretty exciting work and uh, we are following it up. <laughs> right, very exciting. And and Josh, let me turn it over to you. So I'd die in the know, um, what kind of questions you have for Bumi? Yeah, first of all, it was a great paper. I loved reading it. It introduced me to some things I hadn't really thought about before in terms of like how polarity is maintained by EGFR. Um, one question, I guess the burning question I had at the end is probably what your, your future work is, but I was surprised since it has so many, you know, has seven or so ligands, right? EGFR? Yes. How could the mistrafficking of a single ligand affect its localization so dramatically, the localization of EGFR? 
in these cells, are there other ligands that are expressed or is this the dominant ligand for EGFR? Yes, uh, very good question. So it's a highly reductionist approach, let me say, to begin with, because you know we are overexpressing these ligands. So um, in colon cancer and in breast cancer, epiregulin overexpression is linked to progression, response to, to uh, cetuximab therapy, and all those things. Um, but uh, in the cell lines we were using in the paper, uh, they have negligible amount of other ligands. Okay. So whatever we are overexpressing, uh, we believe uh, that is the kind of um, infective principle. Okay, so it just be, it becomes the dominant ligand when you overexpress. Yes, it. yes. This is the accepted or the majority concept right now in the EGF receptor field that majority of the receptor is vasolateral. So 80-90% of total surface EGFR is basolateral. And I confirm that as well. But there is a small significant subset of EGF receptor that is apical, 5%, 10% maybe. And that's, um, we believe, the mutant apical epiregulin is engaging at the apical surface. So... Uh, uh, so a lot of unknowns there. Uh, so we know the receptor is there, uh, very small amount. Uh, we know the ligand is there because we mistrafficked it, uh, but it also needs a cleavage because if it is only delivered to the surface, that is not enough. It needs to be cleaved from the cell surface. The EGF domain needs to be released from the transmembrane clutches, yeah. and which will then bind to the receptor. So we don't know yeah. which is the protease, um, in other words. So we know there are many basolateral proteases, adn 10, 17, for example. Uh, they are majority basolateral, uh, but we don't know apical protease. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm still visualizing how this would happen. So the epiregulin is cleaved at the cell surface, then it interacts with receptor near it, yes. right? Yes. So that has to send a signal then to start trafficking the intracellular EGFR out to the apical side of the cell, right? And is, hmm. is that signal, or is it interacting with EGFR inside the cell first, and, and that somehow affects trafficking out to the apical surface? Okay, I didn't think about it that way. Uh, yes, okay. but that is a distinct possibility, uh, that there is a feedback or kind of activation of the receptor on the apical surface is recruiting more of the receptor to that uh, surface where the ligand is now presented. Uh, I have not looked at that possibility, to be very frank. In my simplistic thinking, uh, I was uh, just thinking um, the receptor dynamics could be different once the apical receptor binds to the apical ligand. Because uh, this is a tightly regulated system. So when, like I mentioned, there is a homeostatic pathway on the basolateral side. By that, I mean the ligand is there, the receptor is there, the protease is there. But there are also negative regulatory loops. That's where uh, um, ubiquitin was. Uh, I, I understand. So yeah. after the EGF receptor gets activated, it also gets ubiquitinated um, by by Sibyl. So this is the E3 uh, ubiquitin ligase. Yeah, yeah. And that is usually a negative uh, down regulatory signal for EGF receptor. So it gets um, uh, shunted via uh, to the lysosomal degradation pathway. So I was thinking, uh, since apical surface is the, the non-native surface for the receptor, those negative regulatory loops might be missing. Uh, yeah. We did have uh, some clues as to that. 
because uh, uh, the ubiquitination um, is done or added on in response to a recognition tyrosine, uh, um, a recognition signal, a tyrosine phosphorylation within the EGF receptor. So 1045, if you want to get granular, is the residue that gets phosphorylated on the EGF receptor, and that is then recognized um, by cell. And that's how then EGF receptor gets phosphor uh, gets ubiquitinated. And we could see all of that happening that pathway on the basolateral surface, but we did not even see the 1045 phosphorylation at the apical surface mm. for EGF receptor. Yeah. It's a cool idea to me because I had this naive idea that you know EGFR would get sent out just kind of aimlessly to the cell surface. I hadn't thought about the polarity that has to happen. Yeah, so th there is a whole different world that people are studying EGF receptor trafficking itself. So I'm only yeah. studying the ligand part of it, and people have um, kind of uh, defined to a great a greater degree how the basolateral sorting of EGF receptor is regulated. There are certain cytosolic determinants within EGF receptor um, domain uh, that then lead to its basolateral trafficking. Then another question. So it caught my eye that within this trafficking motif on epiregulin is a tyrosine. Is that tyrosine yes. regulated by, by phosphorylation? That's exactly what we are working on. And that's exactly what I uh, meant when I mentioned I'm trying to find a kinase for that tyrosine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we did have a preliminary data that uh, that tyrosine can get phosphorylated. I mean, a sledgehammer approach, if you will, we added pervanidate. So everything that could get phosphorylated did get phosphorylated. And we did see that tyrosine being phosphorylated. Do you think it's the phosphorylated form that is trafficking it? <laughs> yes. The, okay. I think so. Uh, but I mean, funny little inside story, the reviewers do not think so. Uh, oh, so yeah. that's why we had to take that out of this paper at least. Um, so I think uh, I did make a phosphodeficient mutant. Uh, I made tyrosine to phenylalanine mutant. Uh, I'm not sure if it made it in this, this paper, uh, which also mistraffics. So a tyrosine to alanine mistraffics to the apical surface. And if you think, you know, get totally granular at the atomic level, the difference between tyrosine and phenylalanine is only the hydroxyl group, which accepts the phosphate. So right. I made the phenylalanine mutation, uh, you know, structure-wise, all the aromatic rings and everything is there but it still mistraffics uh, to the apical surface, the phenylalanine mutation. So, okay. uh, so this is as um, least different I can be from the tyrosine without actually uh, giving people the kinase. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of good work to, to do in the future on that. Um, I'm probably running out of time, but I have to ask one more question. Um, so as far as you identified this mutation in epiregulin that was that occurred several times in patient tumors. Um, yeah, just, like yours, uh, you know, three, four, five times, not, not a okay. whole lot. Of, yeah, not bad, though. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. It really rose above the other mutations, at least in epiregulin. Yes. So that is the most abundant mutation in human cancer. So uh, so just to be completely clear, it's not the tyrosine mutation, but it is the truncation just adjacent. Yeah. That's to, right. to the to that region, which removes that whole tyrosine trafficking motif. Yeah. yeah. So we also made that mutation and expressed it, and also behaves like our 
fine mutation. So it also mistraffics to the apical surface. So as someone who hasn't really thought about cell polarity very much inside a solid tumor, what would be the effects of mistrafficking in, in terms of the architecture of a solid tumor? Yeah, so I think that is a big field in itself and I'm still uh, learning a lot there. You know, when we have a 3D environment, I think I'll start from there, when we have, uh, are trying to maintain uh, these cysts from a single cell. Uh, so the cells will divide multiple times over days and then there will be a division plane. Uh, if the division plane is maintained, then the, the spheroid or the organoid or cyst uh, will have a hollow lumen. So in other words, the cells should divide um, uh, parallel to, to the substrate. Okay. If they don't, then the piling up will start to happen. So the tumor um, grow then yes so that yes out. so that yeah. is you know epithelium many people say it is already like a anti-tumorigenic environment because if the cells are you know talking to each other where um, you know to the neighbors well uh, that is in, in itself is a anti-tumor uh, phenotype uh, but these growth factor ligands or, or when they engage the receptors uh, oftentimes they can um, kind of change the plane of division so rather than uh, dividing parallel, uh, they can uh, divide out of plane, and that uh, then can lead to piling up and maybe even lead to this um, multi-lumen phenotype that we saw in our uh, matrigel cultures. Yeah. And there are a couple of other competing hypotheses that we are trying to um, to sort through. Um, for example, apoptosis. Um, uh, because uh, if the cell or an epithelial cell uh, Kind of um, needs to find a base, uh, the substrate attachment so to the to the extracellular matrix. If if it uh, moves a cell or two away or uh, goes into the suspension, um, the cell is destined to die. So anoic is kind of separation anxieties, often yeah, times, yeah. times called. Um, and if the cells are dividing out of plane um, in the cyst system. Uh, those cells uh, should die away um, because they are now entering uh, in, in a more pro-apatotic environment. But now we, in this 3D environment, we are also sh uh, pumping a whole lot of epiregulin, um, which is a pro-survival ligand. So now maybe uh, we are, you know, kind of changing the flavor from a pro-apatotic to an anti-apatotic environment. So maybe that's one way the cells are living longer in the lumen, and then they are maybe they are attaching back and then making this multiple lumen phenotype. So preventing um, the weakest inside the lumen. That's a that's a cool exactly. idea. Exactly. Well, that's great. It is great. I got to tell you, listening to the two of y'all just kind of describe these new frontiers of cancer research that you're exploring, and and hearing the kind of questions they all ask of each other, it's just been fantastic to listen to. I, I I'm grateful, and it kind of leads to question I'd love to ask. I think our volunteers and our donors would love to know, like, what's the impact of American Cancer Society funding on your research? Well, I mean, it, it came at a time when this project was just in the beginning stages, and it completely changed the game for us. I mean, it, it allowed us to do high-impact work that we couldn't have done any other way. And, and, and we think that it's put us now on a path, um, and I didn't mention in my intro, but we have a small molecule inhibitor of this kinase. So it's put us on a path to really take it, take it from you know, basic research 
to translating it into the clinic. And so it was a game changer for us. What could be better? That's what it's all about, right? From bench to bedside. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Bumi, I guess, could I ask the same question of you about the impact of ACS funding on your work? Yes. Um, so I should mention um, my ACS grant started just this year, but uh, I think the relationship is a little bit older. I actually am a recipient of American Cancer Society Institutional Research Grant. So Vanderbilt, I think, has a long-funded or long um, ACS-supported program that they are giving small um, dollar amounts. I mean, not insignificant, but just, you know, for a starting faculty, that's really critical. Uh, so I got that funding a few years prior to this, and that allowed me to, you know, kind of uh, generate all these uh, preliminary data and these hypotheses, like work on these more, so that I then I could uh, 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 submit a bigger proposal to ACS. And now that is funded. Yeah, so I think um, researchers, but for early stage researchers, I think ACS funding is really critical. This will uh, go a long way to establish my research program, get those initial things set up. That's great to hear. That's exactly, um, it's like a picture perfect example of how we hope it works. You know, these institutional research grants are small one year awards to really yeah, that's all give people a chance to kind of pull together some preliminary data to show that their that they're great idea is worthy of a big grant. And you did it. You leveraged that pilot funding into this and, larger and, uh, grant and big, you're hiring. Uh, and I should also mention all the review process during the ACS um, um, application process. I think uh, two um, uh, program managers had my grant and both of them were incredibly uh, you know, supportive. Uh, even the reviewers, you know, their comments were always constructive. And I think that's um, for early stage faculty. I think that is even more important. Like a little yeah. bit more encouragement, a little bit more hand holding, even if you will, um, so that I'm benefited from that like greatly. Yeah. I have to say too that um, the reviews on the proposal were so helpful. I mean compared to like an NIH grant, which is sometimes pretty minimal, you get minimal feedback. The the feedback from reviewers was amazing. I should also mention that um, in my postdoc, I was funded by a, an ACS postdoctoral fellowship. And that, and this is just basically a continuation of that. So, you know, having ACS support over the years, it's really fun to see that early work now coming to fruition in a, in a more meaningful way, I think, in, in cancer. So. Fun for you. Well, I can tell you it's fun for us. It's, um, <laughs> Pretty cool to see the progress y'all have made and, and everything you're doing to advance the field and help patients. We're really grateful to you. So well, thank you. you. Thanks for this chance. Thank you. Thank you for all that you do. And thanks for your time today. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. No, this was really fun. And thank you. Yeah, again. you too, Boomi.